Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I really and truly think we're on the verge of a new era in America. The political winds are shifting so fast. The fact that at CPAC they weren't even bothering to discuss issues, it was all about personality, tells me that uh, what's left of the base of the Republican Party has gone from being people who actually thought that they knew something about policy to a cult of personality. Consider how far the Republican Party has fallen. In 1956, when Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican President of the United States, ran for re-election, this was his platform. You can look it up. It's the 1956 presidential platform on the Republican side. Federal assistance to low-income communities. Extension and expansion of the Social Security program. Asylum for thousands of refugees, expellees, and displaced persons. Extending minimum wage protections, quote, to as many more workers as possible and practicable, end quote. Improving the unemployment benefit system. Protecting the right of workers to organize into unions and to bargain collectively. And to assure equal pay for equal work regardless of sex. That was the GOP platform in 1956. What was the GOP platform in 2020? There wasn't one. It was, well, whatever Donald Trump wants, that's what we're down with. Meanwhile, the Democrats are debating right now H.R. 1, the For the People Act, to establish, you know, basically to ensure that everybody in America who is a legal citizen and has a legitimate right to vote can exercise that right without undue burden. And Elizabeth Warren just introduced into the uh, United States Senate her uh, 2 and 3% wealth tax for households with $50 million in assets. It's called the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act. It would uh, put a, an annual tax of 2% on the net worth of households and trusts between 50 and a billion dollars in value and a 3% tax on those that are worth more than a billion dollars. She pointed out on television, this would raise $3 trillion. $3 trillion is enough to wipe out all the student debt in America twice. It's enough to fill in all the holes and all the cracks in a national health care system and get it up and running. 
It's enough to rebuild our schools. It's enough to kick off a, a Green New Deal kind of infrastructure program. There are so many things that could be done with this. And by the way, you and I are already paying a wealth tax. People say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, I'm opposed to anybody having to pay a tax on what they own. Well, about 70% of Americans are property owners, are homeowners. I think it's 67%, two-thirds. And 100% of those people are paying a tax on their principal asset, their principal store of wealth, which is their home. In fact, owning homes is the principal way that people move from the bottom of the middle class into the middle and upper reaches of the middle class as they get older and as they start saving for retirement. It's the main way that, that people do that, that families do that. And yet every year, you have to pay a tax on your principal wealth, your home. We call it a property tax. It's a wealth tax, pure and simple. In most states, you pay a wealth tax on the value of your car. You pay an annual tax as part of your license tag fee, or sometimes it's you know every other year to get a new, new sticker, and it's based on how much your car costs. Well, that's a wealth tax. So right now we've got a system where really rich people don't pay a wealth tax. But average people, oh yeah, they definitely pay a wealth tax. What's fair and reasonable about that, huh? How is that a good thing? I don't get it. How is it that average Americans, that 70% of Americans, and by the way, people who rent, they're also paying property taxes. They're just doing it indirectly. Their landlords fold it right into their rent. So really... All of us, all working people, unless you're homeless, are paying an annual tax, an annual wealth tax. Now, it may be on somebody else's wealth. It may be, a, you know, the, the property tax in the apartment building where you're renting an apartment, but it's still a wealth tax that is being passed through to you. But if you own your own home, you're paying a wealth tax. And so all Elizabeth Warren is saying, and, and by the way, the, the property tax in most states when you add up the state, county, and local uh, pro property taxes, and they do kind of stack on top of each other, again, depending on where you live in the country. In some states, it's, it's like, you know, six, seven percent. I mean, it gets really high. Elizabeth Warren is proposing two percent, up to a billion dollars worth of, of money bin. All she's saying is that, you know, that property tax that average Americans pay on their homes every year, Billionaires should pay that on their money bins. I don't get how anybody can be opposed to this. In fact, if you are opposed to it, please explain to me. She adds, the share of American adults who live in middle-income households has decreased from 61% when Reagan came into office to 51% in 2019. We are watching the middle class just absolutely collapse. And then, and then, you know, you get this other question of what are our tax dollars being used for? You'll recall when Dick Cheney was running Halliburton in 1999, when he was the CEO of Halliburton, he engineered a purchase, an acquisition of a company called Dresser Industries. Dresser Industries was a company that sold asbestos. 
and they had this huge asbestos liability. There were all these lawsuits. They were going to be billions, hundreds, tens of, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars in the hole. But there was legislation working its way through Congress that would have just basically made them whole, and you and I, the taxpayers, would have paid those uh, asbestos liabilities. Cheney made a bet that that legislation was going to pass and had Halliburton acquire Dresser Industries for a song. Turned out that legislation didn't pass, and Dresser just destroyed the value of Halliburton. So when Cheney became vice president, Halliburton was like penny stock. I mean, they were, they were, they were facing bankruptcy. So what does Cheney do? He helps Elias into two wars and pass literally tens to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of no-bid contracts, no, non-competitive contracts, to Halliburton, to the company that he still owns stock in. You think Trump was violating the Emoluments Clause? You should take a look at Dick Cheney. And now we get the report from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. just came out. The result of Dick Cheney's war so that he could save Halliburton. And they say that the assets that the United States paid for to build stools, prisons, a hotel, hospitals, roads, bridges in Afghanistan. We're rebuilding Afghanistan, not the United States, Afghanistan. They identified about $2.4 billion in assets that were never used and were abandoned. $1.2 billion out of $7.8 billion in assets were being used as intended. Only $1.2 billion out of $7.8 billion, and $343.2 million out of $7.8 billion in assets were maintained in good condition. In other words, we threw all this money at Halliburton. They threw up some buildings, built some schools and things. They were crappy. They were never used. They're sitting around rusting and rotting. Halliburton got bailed out. Dick Cheney is richer than sin now. And you and I are still paying for it with our with our taxes. And all Elizabeth Warren is saying is, hey, why don't the billionaires pay some of these taxes too? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And I'm sure she would also say, let's clean up what's going on in Afghanistan. President Joe Biden said, speaking of the organizing drive by Amazon warehouse workers down in Alabama, he said, and I quote, today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. There should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. The fact is, that anti-union propaganda is literally a multi-billion dollar industry. Amazon is paying people over $3,000 a day to promote anti-union propaganda <laughs> to and among these workers down there, I mean, which is pretty mind-boggling. So, you know, what do conservatives have against workers organizing? Management organizes, corporations are organized money. If corporations are organized money, why can't we have organized workers who can balance that out? On the line with us is Julio Rivera, the editorial director at Reactionary Times, contributor to Newsmax, American Thinker, and Townhall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com, his website, or his Twitter handle, rather. Oh, yeah, it's Julio. Julio, welcome back. So what's wrong with unions? Why should American workers not be allowed to join together and have representation in their workplace? 
Okay, well, first of all, Tom, we don't live in, you know, the 1800s or the early 1900s where unions really were useful because, you know, working conditions were dangerous back at that time. The United Commercial Food and Workers uh, Union has actually done more damage to workers. Basically, a lot of workers have lost their jobs during the pandemic. What wound up happening is that they've been pushing for a higher pay from certain groceries, chains, and whatnot. And what wound up happening is they pressured in Long Beach, Long Beach, California, they pressured the local government there to create an ordinance looking to pay grocery workers $4 extra an hour, which wound up leading to two grocery, two grocery oh stores, God. two Kroger locations closing. So what winds up happening is they put a lot of $4 an hour broke a multi-billion dollar corporation? Is that what you're trying to tell well, me, Julio? And by the way, if you say you're, you're saying that back in the 1800s when you know people were getting killed on the job, that unions were providing a useful function, have you paid yeah. attention at all to what's going on in meatpacking plants in America right now? There's some of the deadliest. There certainly it's it's a deadlier job than being a police officer. No, it's not. And I don't hear about uh, people dying constantly, you know, cutting meat. And, and, but anyway, but let, me, let me make a, but, another but point But even here. if people aren't dying, don't they have the right to have some say over how they're treated I, in the workplace? I haven't workplace heard anything and... about that, and I'm not going to let you throw me a curveball here. I'm going to stick to my point. The point I want to make, though, Tom, and this is a very serious one, <laughs> is that luck. these corporations are only going to put out as much money on payroll as they deem necessary for their profit margins. And that's what it boils down to. You can't sit there and force a company, a private business, to do business in the way that you'd like them to do. Yes, you can. Ultimately, that's going to lead to less jobs. They're going to they're, they're want no, to we do We do that all the time, people. Julio. We do that with minimum wage laws. We do that with, with uh, safety laws. Well, that's fine. And the by the way, if workers, if they can't get people to work for them, I mean, these corporations, they don't have anything without workers. Workers are who produce the goods and services that these fat cats are getting rich off of. Kroger's among them, you know, a multi-billion dollar, insanely profitable corporation. And if $4 an hour is breaking them, they need to go out of business and let somebody come in like Costco who knows how to run a business. Yo, let me tell you something about Costco. I'm glad you bring that up because in that ordinance that the city of Long Beach actually put forth, uh, Walmart and Costco were actually exempt from having to provide that extra $4 an hour. So these cities are actually, when they're putting together these laws, much like legislation in Washington, D.C. This is not unionization that you're trying to debate here with me, Julio. We're not talking about a law in Long Beach. We're talking about the right of people to have a union. Republicans hate it. Democrats like it. They're a political machine. All they wind up doing is collecting a whole bunch of dues from these workers. They don't really provide much of a service to a lot of these workers other than getting them fired because i think union members would strongly disagree with you salaries they will downsize in staff so there's people out there listen these unions and i'll give you i'll use the, the ucfw example again during the pandemic when you know people were losing their jobs they didn't do anything to cut back on the collection dues that would have immediately probably saved jobs because the, the uh, companies could have temporarily dropped salaries you know to match to offset the, you know, not collecting dues for a short period. All they do, these unions, all they do is they contribute money to politicians to do this for the politicians. So give me, Julio, I still haven't heard an answer to my question. Why should people not have the right to unionize? If they choose to. Well, well, listen, I'm not saying they don't have the right to unionize, but they have to live with the consequences of it. If they sit there and they fight 
These They're perfectly willing to do that. Why? Why is it? Why is it that? Why is it that Republicans are constantly fighting, are constantly opposing the right of workers to unionize? You've got, you've got, I believe it's thirty-four states now. It might be twenty-two. That have that have these so-called right. Union is taking three dollars off of your fifteen dollar an hour pay. You're effectively making twelve dollars an hour. Now the the union. But without that union, you would have been making nine dollars an hour. What was that? Without that union, you would have been making nine dollars an hour. No, that's not necessarily. That seems like a bargain to me. Companies don't want to hire lazy people. They want to hire good workers that earn the money that they actually pay. It doesn't behoove the company to hire a. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me, Julio, that that unionized workers are lazy? That 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 somehow having representation in the workplace. If if when 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 CEOs get together and form a corporation, does that make them lazy too? Listen, I'm not, that's not what the example is. We're talking about, uh, you know, end workers, you know, like people who are going to work in, let's say, the Amazon factory. In the Amazon factory, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and all these fat cats, as you like to call them, are only willing to expend but so much money for that workforce. But what's going to wind up happening is if the union, if they unionize and they force, or, you know, we, you, you got to pay us at this rate or we're going to strike and you're not going to have anybody to work that factory, they're going to wind up leading to massive layoffs. No, they're going to wind up getting benefits. That's how it has worked for over a hundred years. How do you think that, you know, Julio, it was unions who, it was unions who brought us the two day weekend. It was unions who brought us the eight hour day. It was the unions who brought us the 40 hour week. It was unions who brought us workplace safety rules. It was unions who brought us the minimum wage. You know, unions have done people fired. They can they sit there and they fight for an extra dollar, an extra two dollars, an extra three dollars. To those corporations, they're going to be like, okay, well, we don't have extra money, so we're, we will pay the individual worker that. No, much. this is not so about money. This worker. is about we're power. Have fire people, fire people. Would you rather have more people employed or less people employed, Tom? And let me tell you something. That that twenty percent or fifty. 15- percent or whatever it is that the union takes off of the top from that salary i mean do they really earn that money let me ask you a question do yes. the unions have the unions unions are democracies julio their, their importance that's my question unions are democracies they are absolute yeah, democracies. Unions suck. elect unions their own leadership. The unions, you, the, the rank and file rules. of the, the unions determine their policies. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're you're anti-democracy now too. You talk like a guy who's never started a small business, and I know that's a lie because I know you have, and I know you have a smart business mind. You can't possibly believe that unions are still as relevant and as necessary as they were a hundred years ago. That is just I do. In fact, cool. I think they're more important now than ever before, uh, particularly with the ability of companies like Amazon to hyper surveil people. But anyhow, Julio, thanks for dropping another, by. It's always good. That's another argument, which I do agree with. They shouldn't have that right. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the union would be, would be fighting that. Uh, Julio Rivera, ReactionaryTimes.com. Oh, yeah, it's Julio on Twitter. Thanks, Julio. This is hey, the Tom Hartman Program. Peter in Newport, Oregon, it says here you disagree with me about what? Yeah. Hey, side note. My dad, after paying 20 years into union dues, decided to join in the fight because they weren't going to give anybody raises, and he ended up getting every, all the staff a 5% raise. 
So yeah, it, it does work. But um, yeah. I love your show, and I and I tell a lot of people about it and open my eyes. But I I take issue with your with your opinion on the electoral college because I feel like I live in Newport. It's a small rural area here in Oregon, and I lived in Chicago before that. And I feel like the electoral college speaks for nature rather than only for the people. Because when I lived That's in Chicago, nonsense. Well, well, can I finish? Sure. When I, when I lived in when I lived in Chicago, I didn't think anything about the vacant land that was out there. But out here in Oregon, I hike, I bike, I hunt on national forests, BLM land, privately owned forests, and the national popular vote is literally a miniature version of the electoral college. You and I didn't get a vote when our legislature decided to have us join the electoral college, and. And so how is that any different than what's going on in Arizona other than it's the opposite? The effect of the national popular vote is that whoever gets the most votes in America becomes president. We have not had that happen, at least for a Republican candidate, since 1982. So either you believe in democracy or you don't, Pete. I mean, if you believe in democracy, then you think the person who gets the most votes should be president. That's what the national popular vote does. I, I believe in a constitutional republic. And so, like, so? For, for example, if if the people that are are in the big cities that have no idea what it's like to be in a place like Oregon, I didn't even, I knew nothing about Oregon until I moved here. But if those folks are the ones who are the majority of voters, there's no reason to vote in ways that help keep, let's say, private logging land like Starker it opens it up for free to anyone who wants to recreate. So the problem I see is if each state had voted... Where what you voted what you're voted, arguing for, Pete, is, is not... What you're arguing for is policy. What I'm saying, and, and you know, you, you can have that debate. Those are laws that states pass. Those are laws that the federal government passes. Those are rules that the Bureau of Land Management and the, and the Department of Interior pass. Those are things that you can get, become an activist around. Um, the fact of the matter is the Republican Party would rather we didn't have public lands and everything got fenced off, which is going to work to the disadvantage of rural areas, by the way. You know, let them yeah. privatize um, Mount Hood, right? To, just um, to give you but, an idea, but hold on. You are, I'm not arguing no. for the Electoral College as it is. I think we should have a representative Electoral College. Those votes that represent our state representatives are split based on the vote in the state. And the two that are from the senators go to whatever the majority of the state votes. Yeah, and so Wyoming, a senator from Wyoming represents 34 more times, times more power than a senator from California. How is that fair? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. Mark Sumner is writing over at Daily Kos about this new phrase, PASC, P-A-S-C. Get ready to start hearing about PASC. It is post-acute sequelae, if I'm pronouncing that right, of COVID. In other words, long-haul syndrome. It looks like between 20 and 30% of everybody who gets COVID, and we're talking mild cases here, not the hospitalized cases, ends up with these long-term symptoms like arthritis-like pain in their joints, bone-wearying fatigue, ongoing difficulty in breathing, recurring fevers, hair loss, inability to get erections, double vision. This is happening to like 20 or 30% of people. What was amazing, yesterday I saw the statistic that uh, some 70% of Democrats say they want a vaccine, only uh, 35% of Republicans say that they're gonna take the vaccine. So you're gonna have, what, 70%, some more or less of of Republicans who are gonna be suffering hair loss and and erectile dysfunction uh, on an ongoing basis. I mean, this is just crazy. And then we discover that Donald Trump and Melania got their vaccines while they were still in the White House and didn't wanna tell anybody. Is this a plot to kill off Republican voters or to simply render them impotent and unable to work? I mean, it's, it's just astonishing. But the bottom line is, as many of us need to get you know, vaccinated as we possibly can. It's just got to happen. The other thing with regard to the unions, and I, I just, you know, I want to go back to this. Joe Biden said today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. There should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. And I mean, this is a big deal. In fact, one of the first things Joe Biden did is he fired Peter Robb as the general counsel for the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board that was created back in 1935 with the Wagner Act. Trump had put Robb there because Peter Robb was the guy working for Ronald Reagan who helped engineer the destruction of PATCO. And later in his first week, now it's increasingly looking like in Joe Biden, and, and again, I, I keep saying these things that I never thought I would say. I, I was opposed to Joe Biden in the primary. I thought he was going to be Casper Milk Toast, Mr. Corporate. I thought we were going to have another presidency like Bill Clinton's that would just guarantee more Republican victories. And so far, you know, yeah, there have been some areas where he hasn't quite been as forceful as I'd like. But by and large, I've been very impressed. And, and here's another thing. In his first week, Biden signed an executive order that guaranteed all federal employees $15 an hour minimum wage, guaranteed all federal contractors 
bargaining rights and a $15 minimum wage, which is mind-boggling. I mean, Bernie was the one who pointed out that the people working in the gift shops in the federal buildings were actually making seven bucks an hour because they were, or maybe eight or nine dollars an hour, because they were working for contractors that had been hired by the federal government back during Republican administrations. They didn't want more federal employees, so they hired, you know, Republican crony contracting companies, paid them as if they were paying 15 bucks an hour, and then those companies paid people eight, nine bucks an hour, and that's how they made their profit. I mean, this incredible scam. Biden just put an end to that. Most developed countries have a unionization rate between 60 and 90%. Here in the United States, the unionization rate in the private workforce is 6%. When Reagan came into office in 81, he had two missions. Number one, defund the Democratic Party. Number two, reduce the wealth and therefore the political influence and power of the American middle class. He accomplished both with one job, with one action, and that was destroying the union movement in the United States. If we want to bring back real democracy, and in this case, democracy in the workplace, where workers have a say in how companies run, we talk about, hey, one of the great alternatives to capitalism, Richard Wolff is on about this all the time, one of the great alternatives to capitalism is worker-owned workplaces, you know, basically employee-owned co-ops. And that is absolutely true. I wrote an entire book about this called Threshold. And the last chapter, I traveled literally all over the world, Louise and I did. We went to Mondragon in Spain. We went up to, up, you know, across America visiting a worker-owned tool and die shop, a worker-owned cab company, worker-owned washing machine manufacturers. It's a great solution. But you're not going to immediately turn Amazon into a worker-owned company. But at least you can get a union in there and bring some democracy into that workplace. Step one. And now finally, after 40 years, we have a president who is saying, let's, re let's reverse this Reagan policy of destroying labor unions. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. Stick around, we'll be right back with your calls. Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds, an environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life, an economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us, and an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point, and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. 
He set us apart from all other life, and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. The second mistake is a belief that an abstraction, an economic system, is divine and separate from us. This mythical so-called free market, so we believe, operates under its own divine rules and is entirely and eternally self-regulating. It is always right. The fact that worldwide it's more than 95% owned and run by fewer than 0.000001% of us, it's just the way things are, always were, and always will be. We are here to serve the economy, this belief goes. It's not here to serve us. The third mistake is a belief that men should run the world and that women are their property. While it may seem that women's rights are well advanced and society is nearly egalitarian in the developed world, the United States, Western Europe, and Australia combined are only about a quarter of the population of the world. In India, it's still a common rural practice for men to burn their wives to death simply because it's more convenient than divorce. In many Arab countries and across much of Africa and South America, it's not uncommon for women to be murdered by their families if they dishonor the family by not going along with an arranged marriage or not being a virgin at time of marriage. Even in the first world, women are routinely excluded from positions of power in the world's largest institutions, such as the Catholic Church. This is one of our biggest mistakes, not just because it's morally deficient or because it can be biologically challenged, but because its primary result is an explosion in population. The fourth mistake is a belief that the best way to influence people is through fear rather than through the power of love, compassion, or support. We stand baffled when Palestinians in Gaza vote for a political party that has a long history of terrorist activity, somehow completely overlooking the fact that that same group has been feeding people, building schools and hospitals, and providing old age and widow pensions to people in need. We think we can threaten and bomb people into liking us and behaving in ways consistent with our best interests while ignoring their own best interests. We have come to believe that we are not our brother's keeper, that we are separate from all other humanity on the planet, and in all that, we are mistaken. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survive for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. Russell in Lake Jackson, Texas. Hey, Russell, what's up? I haven't been a long-time union member. The one thing it's, I think is being lost in, and I don't have a lot of time for this because I want other things to get to, but, but uh, as far as you know, being vocational schools, you know, the skill set, the health and safety, where we were seeing for a long time there were a lot of cranes all over the you know, various states and cities in the country that were falling, you know, went through rashes. Uh, you know, you ha- there's just something to say for having those vocational schools. Not that a person can go out and you can take them to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy them a tool pouch, and four or five years later they know what they're doing. I mean, but with licensed technicians, I mean, there's there's a lot to say for the union. Set aside from, you know, the fact that you pay dues and, you, and you've and you got, you oh, know, yeah. you're going to 
retirement. This, and I could go on and on about it, but, but I want to get to this partisan, nonpartisanship. What I've noticed is, and the thing that I was telling your screen was, it seems that regardless of what, you know, and I know Biden made the you know, saying he's going to be the president for all. And I, I would love for us to have a country where it's truly going to be that way from both sides. I think we need the Republican Party. But to hear him, you know, at CPAC and Donald Trump talk about there's only one Republican Party and still people preaching the still and and just everything. You're, you're Some of these people like Holly and, and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, regardless of what you do, you're not going to please them. What I don't want to see, and I'm like you, I think they've done real well as far as the vaccine. I could just imagine if we were in a second term of a Trump administration where we would be with this rollout right now. We wouldn't even be close to getting closer to herd with the amount of people vaccinated. We'd be closing in on a million dead people. Exactly. And then because they were in denial and they held super spread rallies and people seem to want to forget that. But the bottom line is, Tom, yep. is, is you know, uh, we we had agendas. There were 80 plus million people that voted for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And what we need to make sure is if it means playing a little hardball, if it means hell, if they can't tell the truth with direct array. And like you said, it becomes repetition. What we need to do is make sure that that we're, you know, trying to do the right thing and for the majority of the people and the ones that voted for this package you know there's 70 some odd million for the percent 70 percent of americans that are for this package to roll out i know they're saying the waste of money and there's still money sitting around well where is it and let's use it but the bottom line is we've got to get back on track and we've got to get the hatred away from neighbors co-workers yep. family members there's still a lot of that dissension that people want they're wanting to sweep under the rug and we can't until we quit you know telling lies and telling the truth about the simple things in america I'm with you. Donald Trump poured poison into our political swimming pool, as it were, and it needs to be purged. Carl in Lindenville, Vermont. Hey, Carl, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I was listening to Julio, and obviously he's never worked in a union or a company that, that has a union. I was a UPS driver for 34 years, and I'm retired now. I have a pension. They paid my health care. It's a contract between management and labor and holds both parties accountable. Uh, we still have to produce as labor, and they have to play by the rules because it's in, in like Amazon, that's time sensitive, just like UPS deliveries are. And when it's time sensitive, there's a lot of pressure, and there's an inclination to abuse that, especially from the management. They would, I was a shop steward, so they would, you know, they would intimidate, they try to bring you up and intimidate you because your production isn't where they think it should be. But what the contract makes them do is go out, management has to go out with a driver and prove that that production can be done safely instead of just relying on intimidation hmm. or you're going to be fired. And with union companies, and because my dad was a stonecutter for 40 years, a union stonecutter, there is lower turnover rates in these unionized companies because they want to stay because they get paid better. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah, my dad you know, was a so, union machinist for 40 years. You know, he worked in a tool and die shop. It was a 13-person shop. My dad part-time did the bookkeeping as well, you know, for this little company that was owned by a local rich guy. And, you know, he negotiated their contract every year. And, and, and as a result, 
I have three younger brothers. All four of us are union members. And two of my brothers became shop stewards. And my right. three younger brothers, they're, they're all younger than me. They are all, one of them is the, the youngest one who's 62 is going to retire in about three weeks. And all of them have retired, not just with Social Security, but with really good pensions. These guys, my brothers have good retirements because, you know, they all grew up in Michigan. It's a, it was a union state. They all had good union jobs and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're living the American dream. It's, it's just like, you know, we need unions, Carl. We need unions. Carl, I got to run, but thanks for the call. And, you know, spot on. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where smart people get their news. Back with more of the news and your calls in just a moment. Uh, let's see, picking up your phone calls and uh, trying to see who's been holding the longest here. Courtney in Brooklyn. Hey, Courtney, thank you. Thank you for waiting. What's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I have a challenge question for you here. I've been on unemployment and everything for quite some time due to the pandemic, and I'm sure other people have been in the same predicament. I recently went to the tax office. I'm basically in a position of I'm paying back taxes. And, you know, I'm not complaining about it or anything, but what stuck in my mind was there was a young lady that was doing the taxes before me, and uh, the amount she has to pay pay back is even higher. So, you know, I'm just taking this into account, and I want to ask you, what are the implications of this when it comes to the policy and, and politics and the statistics about these things, being that working class people, being on unemployment and having this, you know, with the COVID, the COVID relief in effect and everything, people are still in a position where they, you know, have to pay back taxes for being on unemployment. And I just want to know yeah. how, what implications that has in comparison to, you know, to the low corporate tax rate and the fact that, you know, a lot of corporations put a lot of effort in invading their taxes, not to mention Donald Trump and his behavior. 
Yeah, I'm totally with you, Courtney. There are two categories of income that are unique to, or largely unique, to middle-class, working-class Americans, and that's Social Security income and unemployment income, unemployment insurance income. And it used to be when both those programs were rolled out, they were tax-free. The Social Security income started being taxed in 1984 as a consequence of Ronald Reagan slapping a tax on your Social Security income. I don't, right off the top of my head, know when they started taxing unemployment income. I'm guessing it probably was also during the Reagan era because he was looking for every, you know, 16 ways to Sunday to raise taxes on working people so that he could cut taxes on billionaires. But I don't have a specific date that I can point to then or, or at any time. But frankly, I don't believe that unemployment insurance should be taxable. I don't think people should have to pay taxes on it. And if they must pay taxes on it, the government should be taking the deductions in advance so people don't end up you know, with a surprise bill when April 15th rolls around in the next year, because that's what's happening right now. There's going to be 10, 15 million Americans who are going to owe taxes this year for unemployment benefits that they got last year. And frankly, I think it's just wrong that that money is called taxable income. This is, these are survival benefits. This is not, you know, hey, let's live high on the hog. Let's, let's make a, a fancy living and buy a nice house or a nicer house. <laughs> this, this, is, this is getting by. This is, you know, you know feeding the kids. This is, I mean, this is basic stuff. Courtney, thank you for the call. I would love to see a movement within the Democratic Party to put those things on the platform. No more taxation, no more income taxation of social security benefits and of unemployment benefits or any other kind of welfare benefits. These are these are direct payments. They should not be tax, considered taxable income. Welcome back. Ronnie in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's up? Hi there. Uh, I tip my hat hey. to you when you talk to Julio because, oh my God, it's it's kind of hard to listen to him. And I, I have a couple things to pick on what he said. He used two different numbers at two different times. He said that paying union dues that we were paying, I'm a letter carrier for the National Association of Letter Carriers. I've been doing this 31 years, retiring next year, yay. He said we pay 15 to 20 percent of our wages to the union. And a different Which time crazy. he said, it's, it's crazy and it's a lie. The other time he said, oh, so you get $15 an hour and then you give $3 to the union. That is also a lie. I, our union dues, and I don't know off the top of my head, but I think it's maybe it's right around $30 every two weeks. So it's not even 50 cents a day because you're, you're working 80 hours in those two weeks. And his other thing was, and what benefit do you get for it? Well, the benefits are countless. I work a ton of overtime. I work 60 plus hours a week. One of the first benefits is the first eight hours is straight time. The next two hours are time and a half. Anything after 10 is double time. That's a huge benefit that other places won't give you. We earn sick leave. We earn vacation leave. We have a pension. We have great health insurance. The post office did not give us that. It was negotiated by our union leaders. Exactly. There's just... He's just so wrong in thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it was good in the 1800s, but we don't need it anymore. No, 
very few companies will treat their employees with the same respect that unions demand for their union members. And the last thing I would say, if anyone's unemployed, you can apply at any post office because we are hiring everywhere. Oh, really? You're looking for people yeah. at post offices. That's great to know. Yeah. Clerks, okay, Ronnie. Clerks and carriers. Yeah, we're shorthanded everywhere. Great. Well, Ronnie, thank you for that. Thank you for all of that. I appreciate it. And I should have pushed back more directly when Julio was throwing out those percentages because I knew they were, they were nonsense, but it seemed like the bigger argument, but somehow you, you get lost sometimes. Sarah in Kingman, Arizona. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I'd also like to talk about the anti-union guy that called in. So I'm a UPS driver, and these anti-union people can never convince me that being union is a bad thing. FedEx drivers make half of what I make and no benefits. Why would I ever want to subject myself to that? Because right, FedEx is non-unionized. Right. We're Teamsters. Yeah. That's a strong union. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the best. I, I am with you, Sarah. And, and that's one of the reasons why there's been such a push to privatize the post office to FedEx rather than UPS. Because, because hey, oh, let's yeah. break the biggest union. You know, it's the, it's the largest unionized workforce in America is the post office. It's oh, incredible. Yeah. Sarah, I'm thank sure you. That, um, I'm sure that uh, FedEx is salivating over trying to get the post office. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sarah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. I appreciate it. Joe in Parker, Colorado. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hi. I also wanted to chime in on the uh, union dues. My union dues, uh, I started out as a retail clerk for 16 years, and I was a teacher for 22 years. My union dues were 1%. Yeah. 1% of my salary. Never right. And for that. that, you got what? Benefits, sick leave, health insurance. We're constantly negotiating for salary increases. I was the treasurer for my local. I got a $350 stipend a month. And I can tell you, when you're working for a nonprofit and you're paying bills every month and you're doing taxes every year, $350 a month is nothing. So the people that are working in these unions for their unions, for their members, they are not getting rich. Yeah, I'm with you. I am completely with you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for uh, adding your voice to the chorus here. uh, Jose in Toledo. Hey, Jose, what's up? Well, after listening to Julio, I was gagging. I can't believe that character. I myself have been a union member all my life, first working with the Farm Labor Organizing Committee in the Toledo area with tomato pickers, and then uh, becoming a UAW worker. And through the UAW, I got my education to become a teacher. And now I'm a member of the Toledo Federation of Teachers. Unions has done nothing but raise the level of the quality of my life throughout my whole life. You know, I used to have a debate with my father who was a truck driver. He said he made good money as a truck driver. And I kept telling him, you make good money because of the threat of a union. Otherwise they wouldn't pay you squat. So, you know, benefits, I have retirement, I have health insurance, everything is a result of the bargaining power of the group rather than singing by yourself. There you go. Very well said. Jose, thank you so much. Y'all are making the argument uh, so much better than I did, frankly, I think in retrospect. Thank you. We will continue our conversation and more. Okay, I want to share just an amazing science story with you. 
And I'm going to introduce a stretch into this, just my own theory that may be apropos of nothing, but might be really fascinating. I don't know. I, you know, the, for the science geeks among us, follow along. This is a study, uh, Neil Greenfield Boyce uh, wrote this for NPR back on uh, February 18th. And the headline is, Ancient Trees Show When the Earth's Magnetic Field Last Flipped Out. And what they've done is they've, they've you know, he points out the Earth is a giant magnet because its core is solid iron and swirling around it is an ocean of molten metal, which, and, the, and it churns and it creates a magnetic field. And every now and then, the North Pole goes someplace other than the North Pole. It's called the Last Champ Excursion, L-A-S-C-H-A-M-P. It's named after a person who identified it, I believe. And the last time this happened was apparently 41,000 years ago. And they're nailing this down very tightly now. They've historically used rock records because there's certain kinds of rock that have enough iron in them that they will magnetize and point in the north-south in the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. But when the magnetic field is moving rapidly, rocks are not. And so it's really hard to tell small, rapid movements in the Earth's magnetic field from rocks. And so what they did was they found a fossilized forest, 42,000-year-old fossilized forest. And by looking at the rings of the trees and measuring the magnetic direction of the iron or iron-containing compounds in those rings of those trees, here's what they found and I'm quoting here from Alan Cooper, an evolutionary biologist who was working on this with a museum in South Australia. He said, the North Pole wandered across North America, right out toward New York, back again across to Oregon. Then it zoomed down through the Pacific really fast to Antarctica and hung out there. This is the North Pole in Antarctica at the South Pole for 400 years and then shot back up through the Indian Ocean to the North Pole again. He says, when this all happened, the field, the magnetic field of the Earth, which maintains the ionosphere and which protects us from electromagnetic radiation, particularly space particles, that it was about 6% of its strength today. Now that's absolutely huge. Now what got me thinking is what happened 42,000 years ago? Well, what happened 42,000 years ago is suddenly all across the world, we find this in India, we find this in uh, the, the most famous and first ones that were found were in France. In fact, Louise and I were visiting those caves just a couple of years ago. I don't think there's any in North America at this point because North America was first populated by humans around 20, 25, 30,000 years ago, but this is 42,000 years ago. But what you find is suddenly two things happened. The Neanderthals and the, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, Densovians. The Neanderthals were in Europe. The Densovians, or however you say that word, were in uh, what we would now refer to as Asia. Those two species of humans vanished after having interbred with human beings, and we're still carrying that, the DNA from those people. But they vanished, and humans got inside caves. And we've got all this cave painting, all these cave arts. 
And that seems to be something that led in some very specific directions. There was a completely separate article that was published a couple, maybe four or five weeks ago that I don't have in front of me right now, but that speculated based on they have grown using Neanderthal DNA, they have grown Neanderthal brain, what are called organelles, little tiny, tiny pieces of Neanderthal brain tissue. And it's slightly different from human brain tissue. And it's different in a way that they are speculating cause Neanderthals to have really good spatial cognition, the ability to understand where things were, which would be really important for hunter-gatherers, but not so good at social interactions. Whereas humans are really good at social interactions and only moderately good at spatial stuff. And so the theory was that humans started going into caves, human societies started creating, you know, basically societies, or maybe always had been, and that there's strength in numbers, and that's how we wiped out the Neanderthals. But my, the, my theory that I'm adding to this, and by the way, the, the magnetic field of the Earth is now weakening again, is that this is like, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, punctuated evolution. This is one of those moments, one of those bottleneck moments, when two major species of hominids vanished, when the human race made a huge leap forward into art and representation, you know, that, that ultimately led to things like, you know, written down language and You're things. To the Tom All Martin because the pole shifted. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year History of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. This is from the prologue, Why on Earth? The Deep History of Ourselves explores the place of human beings in the nearly four billion year long history of life. When I mentioned to a friend that I was writing such a book, she asked, why on earth are you taking on such a project? That if we really want to understand human nature, we have to understand its evolutionary history. Our behavior is part of our biology. In this book, I've opted to dive even deeper, in fact, very deep, all the way back to the beginning of life, and even to the so-called prebiotic chemical conditions of the Earth, which made biology and hence life possible. I've always been casually interested in the evolution of brain and behavior, but never pursued the topic with such vigor. Then in 2009, I spent some time in Cambridge on sabbatical and became friendly with Seth Grant, a neurobiologist who I first met while he was a postdoc uptown working in Nobel laureate Eric Kandel's lab at Columbia. While there, he began researching the evolution of genes involved in synaptic plasticity to better understand the biological mechanisms of learning and memory and was continuing this line of work at Cambridge. Seth found parallels in plasticity-related genes between rodents and sea slugs, suggesting that may, they may each have inherited the ability to learn from a common ancestor that lived hundreds of millions of years ago. But even more interesting, some of the same genes exist in single-cell protozoa. That's relevant, since animals in current-day protozoa share a common ancestor that lived over a billion years ago. Some of the learning-related genes in our nervous system may therefore come to us via such microbial ancestors. If you know anything about protozoa, you may be scratching your head regarding these findings. Most people, if they think about it at all, think of behavior, and especially learned behavior, as the product of a nervous system. But protozoa, being single-celled organisms, don't have nervous systems, since that requires special cells, neurons, and they only possess one all-purpose cell. 
yet they have a robust behavioral life. They swim away from harmful chemicals and toward useful ones, and they even use past experience to guide their present responses, suggesting that they have the ability to both learn and remember. The logical conclusion is that behavior, learning, and memory don't actually require a nervous system. This was eye-opening to me, so I did a little research to see what was known about the behavioral capacities of single-cell organisms. I found accounts not only of their swimming away from danger and toward nutrients, but also of moving toward or away from chemicals or sunlight to balance fluids or regulate temperature inside the cell relative to its environment. Protozoa even engage in mating behavior, sex, to reproduce their kind. Protozoa are relatively recent single-celled organisms, having appeared about two billion years ago, when they evolved from another familiar single-cell creature, bacteria, who are the oldest living organisms, having emerged about three and a half billion years ago. Bacteria exhibit many of the same kinds of behaviors that protozoa do, uh, but they did so first. They approach and avoid useful and harmful things in their world, and they even learn from experience what is useful and harmful in their world. They don't, however, reproduce sexually. They simply divide in half. Sex is the behavioral claim to fame of eukaryotes, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, which evolve from bacteria and which include protozoa and animals. When animals engage in defensive energy management, fluid balance, and reproductive behaviors by freezing, fleeing, eating, drinking, and mating, scientists and laypeople often describe these activities as an expression of underlying psychological states, consciously felt experiences such as fear, hunger, thirst, and sexual pleasure. In doing so, we effectively project our own experiences onto these organisms. Given how ancient these behaviors are and how they arose long before nervous systems, we should probably be more judicious in making such attributions based on our mental states. And then he continues, The Deep History of Our Cells, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 